welcome along to World and Union Balls.ie's weekly rugby show with me, Mick McCarthy, alongside Morris Brosnan. How are you, Morris? Great, Mick. Yeah, how about you? Well, I'm not bad because just a couple of days ago we watched Ireland get back to the Ireland that we know and that was 90% possession, <laughs> 95% territory, uh, crawling along, pick and run, going through the phases and eventually just wearing a team out so much that all they wanted to do was get sin-binned and get a rest for 10 minutes. <laughs> just the Ireland of old, you know, the, the real exciting rugby that brought us a Grand Slam and the win over the All Blacks and the greatest year of Irish professional rugby's history. And even just the... Like the one th- word I think you associate with this Ireland team when they play well is accuracy. And it was finally back in terms of just the passes that weren't sticking were finally sticking. They, even just really simple stuff like, play, like Rob Kearney had referenced this in Carlton House last week. When that play finally sticks, what it does for a team. And you saw that like with Keith Arrow's play, for example, and stuff like that. Like it just, it clicked. And yeah. it's been something we've kind of been crying out for a long time and it's well overdue. No, without a doubt. And um, like I say it facetiously about the the kind of the, the boring yeah. style, but I, I genuinely was delighted to see it back. I, that was like, I tweeted after about 20 minutes of game. I was like, this is more like it. This is yeah. what this team is built on. And look, maybe we do want them to evolve at some stage, but at the moment what they need to do is get back on the horse and you know um, we'll talk about Wales in a second but what I think is going to be really helpful is get that win under the belt play well get a like a handy win but six day turnaround means not too much more time to think about this you're straight back on it's probably the best six day turnaround they'll ever have because this is the time they need to you know, be playing games and just getting this going. Uh, yeah, and even just in terms of physically, what it meant to after f- you know fifty minutes, Keen Healy. Like, isn't, there's no secret to the fact that he's probably playing the most attritional position. He's the first sub, and very yeah. quickly after you yeah. get off both your halfbacks, both halfbacks gone. Back injuries, yeah, that kind of like it's once the game was wrapped up after that, it kind of became a an uncontest. But it was just about trying to get the yeah six day turnaround, especially with Wales having the extra day. You want to try and make up for that advantage by uh, by giving them a longer yeah, break, yeah, an extra day and at home you yeah. know both of those things together uh just on today's show i should probably tell you that we are going to focus on wales um josh gardner of the mud and blood podcast one half of that podcast um big wales fan we had him on the show a few weeks ago and uh we're going to get him on to talk again to, to exact look we're going to talk in detail about wales's form how they've done it under the shadow of everything that's going on in Welsh rugby at the moment, like just absolute shock and stuff, and how those players have come together um, with a real, I can siege mentality under Warren Gatland, who deserves enormous credit that they could, they're going for a Grand Slam in, in, in Cardiff. They could win the Grand Slam without a bonus point, which would be remarkable in itself. Um, and we'll talk to Josh about everything to do with Wales and, and that match. Um, Morris, we'll also get your, your team. Um, you were a little bit off last week, but uh, from what Joe eventually picked but uh not too bad no yeah, not too bad kind of slowly came back around after yeah and actually i think a couple of his decisions worked out well i thought ian henderson um who we we, we all wanted a bit of tight burn action but ian henderson played well the land played well when he came on really well yeah there's definitely just a depth of second row there the thing i wanted to talk about most though and again i tweeted this i should stop tweeting during these games i'm just giving away all my podcast takes <laughs> before i do but uh the one thing that I really took away from, and it, it, there's a kind of, it, it, it's almost just a sense of like, uh, you forget sometimes how far Irish rugby has come. But I grew up watching Ireland and France. I heard Keith Wood talking about it recently that you think he only beat them twice in his career and played them so many times. I grew up on hammerings. And in those hammerings, generally, we went about 30 points down in the first hour. And then Ireland would sneak in two tries when France had basically started smoking fags walking up <laughs> you know as they just basically give it up and we're just waiting for the post-match dinner and ireland had so many garbage time uh tries against france and as we were winning 26 nil and i was hoping we'd nil them i actually got a satisfaction out of them making a 12 point game in a game that should have been a 30 or 40 point yeah did you yeah i, I do, no like... don't get me wrong i know what you're gonna say i definitely was like oh god could we not have just finish it out yeah like there's a there's as the fan of this team i was disappointed but i'm just saying that there's a part of me of the overall irish rugby fan that has seen that has taken no satisfaction from the from the the what's the word the the, the um consolation score i couldn't think of that word but there's taken no satisfaction from it in the past and it's just made a scoreline look closer than it is for the history books um i was almost thinking like god I, it, it's great that France are coming to Dublin and getting consolation tries. It's remarkable. Like 
Uh, yeah, like for me, yeah, France it's, were shit. But anyway, th- on that team, actually, that that's I, I, there's a there's an element of sadness, a kind of a what French rugby yeah. become for me. Like there is a there's a especially like I still there's a lot of ability in that team, but it's just how kind of I thought they were really poor. I I, I but I think for Ireland it was more so about the performance, not even necessarily a result, just about the performance as a team. Like focus on your own performance, and that was it was a theme throughout that game that this was a kind of a team performance. Like the pack particularly kind of to a man really mm-hmm. turned up yeah um but then on the other hand there's like a minor caveat in the fact that how bad france were and there's like really kind of elementary stuff that would just do your head in like there's a stage there's a stage when um i don't know if you remember this in the first half where uh bastro turned over ring rose Ireland got the ball back and then uh there was a pass out wide from conor murray to jordan Lamer, and he he just dived on the ground to try and catch it it just was a poor pass went to ground it was a knock on yeah but that was ring rose i think yeah sorry it was yeah. ring rose yeah, yeah. But off that chance, that was I think that was the best try chance Ireland had because if you look at the French defence at that time, there's three players in the French defensive line against five and all three are running in different directions. So you've mm. got Gelfikau who's running laddery, Bastro who's running across, sorry, it's not Bastro, it's um, Piccamo who's running across his other inside defender. Like there are three, there's just no uniformity in it. It was a, an unbelievable chance if you just had numbers out wide. It didn't work out. Yeah. But that stuff is is widespread in this French team. It's yeah. just, there was a Jamie Hay, like, and this this goes back to the idea, you know, the trickle-down cultures. We've spoken about this with uh, Ian Costello on this podcast in the past about the idea of uh, trying to influence a culture. It has to be something that you're obsessed with. And Jamie Hagen, who's playing in the D2 at the minute, did an interview in the Sunday Independent on Sunday, and he spoke about, like, at his club, where you get stages where the owners just drive in and sack all the coaches and tell the players they're going to take it for a week. And this kind of, like, total clamorous stuff. You've heard similar stories about the French rugby team where there's reports that Lepore has now arrived in and training the team. Like, mm. it's just, it's a it's kind of a circus act i think there's a it's also it's a massive waste of potential given the fact of yeah. what they could be if there was as a uniformity none of that should or will affect ireland it's just something to kind of no i didn't know and, and when i say i get satisfaction from it it's more how the tables have turned for us yeah that yeah. we're now the team that are kind of like sending people home kind of happy to have got a late try it's actually no satisfaction from how far france have fallen oh, yeah. on the calamitous culture like brunel uh leave ramon Saint Andre, who yeah. was a well thought of coach when he was in uh, when he was in England. Um, I'm missing one. I'm missing the most recent coach before before Brunel. Uh, Guy Noves. Guy Noves, one of the greatest coaches of all time, uh, and and probably had lost a step or two. And that Toulouse team were definitely on the decline when he took over. But one of the greatest, one of the renowned coaches of world rugby. They all can't be these lunatic figures that completely just make a balls of it every time they go into France. There has to be something more structurally Precisely, unsound. Yeah. And that's yeah. I, I know that's what you're saying, but if you actually take the people involved, like it it doesn't make sense that like I mean, how many French coaches have you heard being called a clown on Six Nation coverages, you know, and that they're ruining French rugby and stuff like that. It can't it can't just always be the coach. And they're they're in like it's a really it's an impossible situation to be working in a situation where you're so at loggerheads with your clubs like you've mm. got a situation where unions and clubs are literally in competition against each other so in terms yeah. of that comes down to in terms of access to players in terms of really simple stuff like revenue streams all that kind of stuff like they, it it's it just goes to show how much more successful the irish model is but at the same time like the they're kind of fighting a losing battle constantly, and yeah. I, I, I would be not one bit surprised to see a change though. Like we've seen GIF players introduced already. Paddy Butler spoke to us about that. Um, on top of that, that the idea that the World Cup is going to be based there in 2023, they have to get their house in order for that. Yeah. It's funny the amount of times that that World Cup has been referenced, despite the fact that it's the World Cup you know, this, this year. year yeah, the, the, and with, with a team talented enough to do something at it, if Big not time, win yeah. it, like yeah. yeah, that 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 it's the 2023 World Cup that is often referenced in relation to. France. Yeah, they could turn it around quickly though, and that is the thing you say. There's talent there. There just needs to be some kind of, like you know, a Genesis report maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. or even just that, like, <laughs> think, like, they work, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> even like, I, I, even just if it takes something really simple like, um, like this, maybe a siege mentality, like the idea where you get, mm. I, like I was kind of curious to note that a lot of the players who were very vocally critical were kind of bombed out initially like Morgan Parra who spoke about not knowing what positions they're playing in or things like that and suddenly he was out and they string against a performance against Scotland but then yeah. on the flip side of that I thought they might be better against Ireland I thought they were really poor yeah I thought DuPont and, and Intermac would make it it just it, it almost it's not anything to do with them it wasn't the it wasn't the match or it's not a team strong enough to support 
inexperienced halfbacks really yeah. at the moment. You know. Anyway, look enough about France because I think it's something we could talk about for a long time, and we will as we head towards the World Cup. But on Ireland, you know, a better performance, like as you said, a lot of accuracy, um, and they did a lot of things well, and they got some of their plays off. You know, which just haven't been working. They haven't had the, the they haven't just been able to get through to that next phase at all in the tournament. And today they did, or on Sunday they did for the first time. You've been looking at a couple of them. Yeah, I mean, I saw like the when you talk about set pieces with this Ireland team, their scrum has been solid for about three years. Ever since Greg Feek arrived, essentially the work he's done is kind of phenomenal. I actually think this this might be an anomaly. I need to check this, but I think this was the first time Ireland lost a scrum against their own on their own feed. Yeah, in, in two years, I think. Wow, really? I think, yeah, I think it was. There was a it was it wasn't forty-eight hooked. scrums. Yeah, so this and it, like it wasn't it wasn't a bad push it was just it was a miscue so um but i mean the one aspect of the something that i think a lot of people might have been uh, concerned might be the wrong word but might have been kind of looking at was the line out because it was poor against italy i mean there's there's no way of getting about but that it was 75 percent this weekend it was back to 94 percent and i remember like, i remember doing a, a coaching session with brett wilkinson the old Connors prop and he used to talk about the idea that you know like your lineup can never be simple enough to be predictable but it should be smart enough and yet simple. So what he's talking about is like, keep it super simple, but you're trying to outsmart your opponent. And that's mm. what you're trying to do every single time. And I think... And th- that can include things like timing as much as mixing up yeah. the actual throws and the directions. Like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And th- I mean, that's like a really fun... This is a really s- simple thing with a lineup. But say, for example, Rory Best is thrown to... You know, he, the first, I think, four throws were to Ian Henderson or Peter Mahoney. Then he overthrew one, and it was because it was to James Ryan. And I think that was just because in his process, he was thrown to a certain height. Like, you've got a guy like Ian Henderson, who's a monster, and Peter Matney, who in terms of his height and that he reaches in a jump, I don't think he, there's anybody who can read a rival him. And then this isn't a criticism of James Ryan, but he just doesn't get the same, you know, like, vertical jump, or whatever, and, and on that. So if that was to a thrown to Ian Henderson or Peter Matney, it isn't an overthrow. It's The cue is perfect. But within, like, there's certain things within the framework of Irish Ireland's lineup play that I really like. So we spoke recently about um, the Crusaders, the try they scored against the Reds, where they just didn't put up a jumper. They just put a guy in in it too. So it's, you know, your, your front jumper, and he catches the ball on the ground, and they maul that over. So it's just, mm. it's you know, no wasted energy. And then if you look at, you know, to go back to the Irish example, they've kind of, there's been subtle manipulations within it that I think are really kind of clever. So there was the Scotland game where Conor Murray stood in at the front of the line-out and Josh van der Flyer stood as a scrum half. I mean, it's a total legal thing to do. But by doing that he occupied the front lifter. So Dell at the time was looking at Conor Murray and because he was looking at Conor Murray, he missed his lift. So you get an uncontested jump against them. They take the ball. It's just so simple within that. And then you look at what Wales did the very same thing. I wonder, did they look at this as well? Because they put George North at the front against Scotland again last weekend. Except this time they did throw it to George North. I think because Adam Dell or whoever else might have been disciplined, don't get caught by the guy at the front. Focus on yeah. your job. And this time George North goes in, George North catches and breaks through. Now it didn't turn out quite as well because he got tackled by the Scottish hooker. But Ireland then bring Keith Earls in to the front. So this is, like all this is, but it's, again, it's kind of really simple but it's slight evolutions on that. So they tried it in the 13th minute with Gutierrez at the front and looping around, and it didn't work out. But eventually, when he does stand in the front and they take down the ball to, to maul it, he, like, you know, we talk about this thing, animation. So Joe Schmidt wants his players to be really, really animated. He is the opposite of animation at that moment. He's standing there, his hands are by his side, he's doing everything he can, like, he's loitering. He's doing everything mm. he can not to become, you know, attract any attention. And then suddenly... CJ Sander breaks from the back of the mall. And CJ Sander, one of the striking things on that is he doesn't run, you know, a vertical run. He runs laterally. So it's at times like you'd be critical of him if he was breaking off a run because he's running towards the pillar. But he's doing it deliberately because he's freeing a gap for Keith Earls to come back in. Mm. And that's a really, like, that's really, really simple in, in itself. But when it works, it's perfect. It's just where it's this, it's a totally in sync move. It's this thing going back to Joe Schmidt's strike plays. Like, none of them are. I wouldn't be one bit surprised if people are watching Super Rugby and taking these plays from there and trying to implement them in the Six Nations. He's spoken before about the idea that he takes them from the Moider 10 Cup. So none of these plays are, you know, the most grandest or complex things in the world. But the point isn't that they're, you know, gr- yeah. massively intricate moves. The point is that they're successful. That they and work, they're, yeah. And they're consistently are. It's, just, it's like, I think this Irish team, in terms of rugby IQ, or in terms of their intelligence, is at a level that we will never have seen previously. 
to the extent where like something really simple like Keen Healy we spoke about this off air Keen Healy recognising that if the ball is on the try line it's he can't be outside he can yeah. touch the ball down like that is something that Conor Murray tried to do with Munster against um against Gloucester this yeah. season in terms of recognising that he's got an opportunity there they actually you, if you watch that back again he's he looks there's two rooks before that he looks both times to see where that ball is like mm. he was he was hunting that he and was, actually because and I have to be honest and say I didn't know that Healy but a lot of people I, didn't, I didn't know yeah. the rule and people told me on Twitter and that's fine because I was like how is he not offside because yeah. I just kept checking was the ball out but it was really within the rook there Definitely, was three yeah. four legs there between <laughs> yeah. it but, and I was like I didn't know the rule I'd never heard it before and of course it makes perfect sense and yeah he did he waited until it went back but if you'll notice for it, it I, I'm just trying to uh, illustrate your point here about Ireland being this smart and alert. Like you, everyone can be smart and everyone can know the rules, but it's do you see them in the moment? Um, rugby team, right? Because Healy saw it and went for it. But if you look at the replay, the one from behind the goal, another player is jumping in as well. Conor Murray on the it other was side. Murray, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. he's seen it too, and he yeah. went right. I'm going for this too, you know. And it was like there's at least two players aware of what's going on there. Obviously, Healy had the better angle to come in, and like I mean, that's a try. If if he had touched that down instead of knocked it on, that's a try we would have been talking about for years. And like there's a there was a moment where um, I think this Irish team, their discipline is incredible. Like they, they, I think they only gave away one penalty in the first half, and then it, the game slightly descended. And I think in the end they only gave away seven in total. Um, but there was a moment where Keane Healy, uh, uh, separate to this, Keane Healy tackled the scrum half. He thought the ball was out, and the referee actually called the ball out. And if Johnny Sexton was really, really out vocal, and he, he shouted at him, "You're not allowed to play the nine. And I think that was their idea was that they were looking to block the kicker and convert that into a scoring opportunity. And also, it's the idea that Irish discipline is self-enforced. Like the him vocally criticizing his opinion. We spoke about body language a lot on this thing. That was enforcing like a team ethic. Like this is a team rule. We don't concede that kind of penalty. That mm. was what he was what he was trying to do. He, it was the manifestation of that idea right at that moment. And that just comes back to like your rugby IQ, like understanding that that is actually a thing. That the, yeah. You could see French players were nearly baffled by what Keane Healy was trying to do. Like they, it, it didn't really register with them. And I think this Irish team, in terms of actually their in-game intelligence, yeah. like another person who No, if, Fr- if France were thinking on the same level as Ireland there, they wouldn't have let that ball touch exactly, the try line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another player who embodies that is somebody like Gary Ringrose. Like Gary Ringrose's yeah. in-game intelligence is, is phenomenal. I don't think there's a, a better player currently uh, playing in the centre who's as good on both sides of the ball. Like There's better attackers and there's better defenders, but nobody who's as like, versatile as he is in terms of what he does on both sides. Like His defensive ability... He's somebody... I, I never was aware of this until we spoke to the Wasps defence coach, Ian Costello, but the benefit... like He, he spoke to us about stop obsessing about... Uh, on Farrell's missed tackles. Mm. And then if you look at it, a lot of time Guy Ringrose comes up, shoots up at a line and misses a tackle. But what he does, in the case of Gael Ficao, is forces him back infield. And he does it because they have numbers on the other side. So mm. by forcing him back infield, somebody else makes a tackle and they get set and numbers drift across then. But he's doing it deliberately. Like making the tackle isn't the point. Not letting the ball get wider is, is the point. There's a there's a deep, like, there's nuances that we, we can't even comprehend going on here. <laughs> and uh, Ireland seem to have them down right now. Yeah, and it was like, I mean... It's no surprise that Ireland's performance just became that little bit more consistent and accurate with Ringrose back in the team. And time, like, yeah. I mean, he was easily Ireland's best player against England in a poor performance. And CJ Stander as well, just coming back in, just links that pack together, doesn't he? Because just having that option of him, and it's not not even always barreling down lads, but he just takes so many guys out of the game. And having him back at full strength, let's face it, he was a broken literally a broken man for nearly the entire England game before yeah. he went off so those two players had a lot to a rugby team when they come back in and and, and especially I think when it's like one's in the centre and one's at eight you know that's it, it's it's two such important positions in terms of having the ball you know um, anyway look we, we, we can get more into it and I think uh, you're going to do up uh, some of that analysis on, on site and people can read it because I definitely learned something there I didn't uh, I <laughs> I have to say I was following along going and I didn't really see this yesterday now I have, <laughs> have to be honest but uh, we'll get your team um, who you think should start against um, against Wales uh, in a few minutes but I do want to talk more about Wales um, and I'm delighted to say that uh, rejoining the show uh, right now is Josh Gardner one half of the Mud and Blood podcast Josh thanks so much for talking to us no worries gents thanks for having me 
I, I can't imagine why you uh, you asked me back. No. Uh, <laughs> well, we had, we had a lot of good response last time. We talked about rugby jerseys and lots of other things, but this time it's more kind of brass tacks. You know, we're at the we're at the end of the the Six Nations campaign. You're a Welsh man. We're Irish, and you know Ireland are going to Cardiff to try and do what we did to England two years ago and crush the hopes of a nation and uh, take yeah. a Grand Slam away. You know, we want to. We might not be uh, Six Nations champions anymore, but we want to be the last, uh, the last Grand Slam team. But uh, it is interesting. I, I mean, when we when we talked at the start of the Six Nations, I know Morris here was saying that Wales are the dark horses to go on and possibly win the tournament. But um, you know, a Grand Slam in a year like this, and they haven't done it yet. But like it'd be an amazing way for Gatland to finish up uh, as Wales coach in the Six Nations, and obviously, what a fill up to bring him into the into the World Cup. Massively so. I mean, it's it is interesting. Like I, I at the start of the tournament, I sort of felt like there was a slight chance that we might have quite a good tournament. But as you say, I, I never expected a Grand Slam. I didn't think anyone would get a Grand Slam this year because it just felt too tight and too competitive. And obviously, that might not. Yeah, there's a very good chance that might still not happen, but it's it's an absolute testament to sort of the force of will of Warren Gatland and Sean Edwards that after everything that's gone on in this tournament, the shambles that's gone on off field, that yeah. the you know we've not played brilliantly for quite long stretches of this tournament, but we've still kind of managed to find a way to win, and that's kind of, that would kind of almost be a perfect Warren Gatland sign off. Really, is that you haven't played brilliantly. You haven't done as well as you could do, but somehow you just managed to pull it out when it matters. Which is kind of one of the most remarkable things. I mean, they, they brought in a rule when they in, in instigated bonus points in the Six Nations to give a super a super bonus point uh, to, the, to the winners of the Grand Slam. We really didn't think it would, you know, definitely not as quickly come into fruition. But if if, if Wales get a four-point win against Ireland and uh, England, as we expect, get five points against Scotland... They're going, you know, without that, need it, that yeah. bonus, you know, England probably would have won on points difference. So uh, glad they brought it in, first of all. But it is amazing that a team is going into a home game to win a Grand Slam, having not, not even uh, scored a bonus point yet. Yeah, we've scored nine tries in this tournament. It's the same as Italy. Yeah. You know, it's, wow. it's, like, I mean, no disrespect to Italy, but that, that does show kind of every game has been, it's been, you know, as a Welsh fan, it's been horrible watching this Six Nations because not a single game has been enjoyable on end. I mean I mean I don't I've never enjoyed a Wales game in my life because that's just who I am. But even like people who normally enjoy Wales games have just been saying like these are horrible to watch because there's none of them are easy, none of them are straightforward. They've all just been kind of really horrible, sort of attritional pull the squeak the win out in the end sort of thing. And yeah, it's it's not been fun, but it's it's been effective. Does that uh, efficiency give you confidence or cause for concern with Ireland coming this weekend? It's a little bit of both. Like I'm, I'm reassured that we haven't managed to cock it up yet, mm. but at the same time, I'm slightly concerned at how much we've struggled for fluidity for large portions of all of the games that we've played so far. And against a team like Ireland, that's always worrying because you know you guys know how to keep the ball, you guys know how to exert pressure, and it's a sort of it's a different kind of challenge for us this weekend, definitely. Yeah, but without without it becoming a cliche, you know, winning is a habit, and like knowing how to win close games is something that you know it's something we talked about a lot with Ireland last year in twenty eighteen, mm. and the run that Wales are on now, phenomenal run. Like you, what I think it's like four games off the 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 world record at this stage, the 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 famous All Blacks, uh, yeah, uh, 18, 18 tests, and you know. Like for a, for a country like Wales to go so many Test wins in a row, and like it's been relatively unheralded. I feel like I don't I don't think that you know Gatland and his team are getting enough credit. I feel like they got a lot of credit for beating England in the manner that they did, and rightly yeah. so. But it's you know because they haven't set the world on fire in all the rest of the games. This winning streak is actually gone under the radar for what it is. Yeah, it's the, sort of the most workmanlike record winning streak that. You know, I can remember we're not blowing teams away, with the exception of maybe sort of Argentina in the summer. We haven't been smashing anybody. We haven't been scoring loads of really, really good tries, although we have scored decent tries when we've scored them. But yeah, it's it feels like there's not been a lot of, and understandably, because we didn't really beat anybody 
that good until England. Mm. When you look, you look at that streak, and it's like we're beating Argentina, we're beating the you know the ghost of South Africa, we're beating a, you know a very limited Australia side. We'll be you know it's with the, a win's a win, but until the England game, there wasn't really a proper statement win. I don't think. Fair enough. To what extent, Josh, would you think that this achievement is more remarkable because of all the distractions that have hung over this Wales team? Like, I mean, whatever about what's going on in the club game, you've got Warren Gatlin, who's definitely leaving. There's been a lot of speculation about maybe Sean Edwards and Wasps. Like, this kind of stuff in Ireland has been perceived as maybe a distraction for players that, you know, it's Joe Schmidt's farewell. And yet, in Wales, it seems to be turning on just fine despite it. Like, I mean, I wouldn't, that's the thing. I, I was amazed that we managed to, particularly when things really got back to the wall on the weekend against Scotland. I was really excited. I thought, this is where everything that's happened in the last fortnight is telling at last. Um, because it just looked like we were a little bit rudderless. And, you know, you, you look at what Gatlin said about, you know, players having to leave training to go to meetings with their regions, to go meet the WIU. They're constantly on their phones, like texting their agents or their wives because they're worried about how they're going to get the mortgage paid at the end it's been a you know a typically only happens in wales level of stupid distractions over the last fortnight but it's an absolute testament to gatland and to edwards that they managed to basically shut out the noise enough yeah. that that they've managed to still pull together as a team because that could you know anything could have happened really with that, everything that's been going on and i hope we have a quiet week this week <laughs> <laughs> And they did have their backs against the wall at the end. At the, yeah. Like, like, you know, whatever about Scotland, like, I mean, it's still a home team coming at you in the last 20 yeah. minutes of a Six Nations game. It's never going to be easy. And they did stand up to it. And I think it showed a lot of character. And that's what I'm kind of saying about that win streak. It's no matter who you play, you're winning close games. But, you know, I don't know if there's a siege mentality or something maybe kind of... I think there definitely is, there. actually. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, in that sort of situation when particularly when you know, your own union and your own, you know, regions are potentially, you know, not on your side. That's pretty good fodder for any kind of siege. And Gatlin, Gatlin loves to create a siege mentality, whether it's a Lions tour, whether it's Wales or whatever. That us and them thing is so important. And coaches in general, to be honest, but Gatlin absolutely loves it. And, you know, you can see this week, with the way that they've defended and the way that they defended on the weekend, you know, that kind of, we who cares about anybody else outside of this room it's just about mm. the you know 30 odd people here thing i think is, is probably a message that he's used a lot in the last fortnight yeah i'm sure i'm sure and i'm sure that ireland will be well aware that they're going into a, a mm. very together team who are winning a lot of games but um before we talk just to specifically on the game what's your own take on what's been going on in the last couple of weeks um <coughs> I, we're, we're kind of none the wiser than we were a week ago, really, as to what exactly is going to happen. But as of as of right now, everything's up in the air for the future. Scarlets and Ospreys. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, I'm an, an Ospreys fan. It's it's not been a very fun couple of weeks, to be honest. It's been pretty depressing. Um, but it's it's the nature of the the beast, really. Welsh rugby isn't ever since basically the game went professional. Welsh rugby cannot afford itself in a, a club game, you know. There's too many. There's not enough money in in the country to basically pay for it, and that's always been the case. Something's got to be done about it. I don't think the ideas that they came out with in the last couple of weeks are the the ideas that are going to solve their problems. But I think there's there's got to be a sense of we've got to go back to the drawing board now, and every, you know it needs to be a clean slate, and they need to start thinking of some other ideas beyond the ideas that they've had because there's clearly they're so unpopular with everyone. Josh, I, I couldn't help but notice after the um, after Ospreys lost to Ulster and uh, Scarlets were beaten by Treviso, you uh, kind of took exception to some Irish fans, I suppose, what would you call it, criticism of the Welsh disdain for, perceivable disdain for, for the Pro 14. And I'm wondering, like, from your own perspective, from an Irish perspective particularly, what would you like to see? Like, is, is this, I think you uh, might have said it was, uh, it was kind of a let them eat cake mentality. Like it, it, yeah, yeah. There was it was like a sort of I, I took exception to some sort of people saying like oh you know if you get your game sorted out it will all be fine sort of thing and yeah you know the the money you know there are structural reasons within Welsh culture not just Welsh rugby as to why Welsh rugby has never been able to there are there are myriad other reasons as well not least the fact that you know governance in Welsh rugby is not good enough but I think from a Pro 14 point of view obviously. We need to get more capital into the game somehow because we live in a, a 
post CBC era now, and it's not just us that's going to be feeling the pinch before long. If you know venture capital is flowing into the Prem and into the top fourteen at the level that it is at the moment, but yeah, I think a transparency and an and even like I get that we have a problem in the Pro Fourteen that it's being run, you know, by four different or five different countries unions now with five different agendas and five different objectives and you know for there to be some sort of coherency of purpose for what we actually want the pro 14 to be whether it is a place where you know irish provinces can use it as a really flipping good proving ground for their younger players to get some game time and learn on the job so that when it comes to the important stuff of europe they've got really deep squads or whether it is you know, somewhere that, you know, South African teams can put their their places they don't know where to put in Super Rugby and all this sort of thing, you know, some sort of joined up thinking where it's not just five unions with five different agendas having, because that's, that's the difference between us and the Premiership, really. And I, I don't rate people who say that the Premiership is, is better than the Pro 14. The standard of rugby is not any better at all, I don't think. But I just think... They're all on the same, you know, the Premiership are all singing from the same hymn sheets. Mm-hmm. Premier Rugby, they, 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 they negotiate as one, they communicate as one, and and it shows in the results that they get in terms of the money that they're able to extract. And I think if, if we could be a bit more united, then there's a hope for the league that I'm not sure is there at the moment. But just on that, Josh, just from a from an Irish perspective, like the, mm. the Pro 14 seems to have really registered in Ireland. Like there, there's a mm. kind of a buzz of excitement, particularly, for example, in a place like Leinster at the prospect mm. of young players coming through and that for for whatever reason you might know why does does not seem to exist in Wales like there seems to be kind of a, a ambiguity or maybe it's just like at times it feels like a disdain towards the tournament from Welsh fans and things like and I'm wondering like what do you put that down to like what is the from a Welsh perspective what is the tournament lacking that Ireland seems to be able to capitalize on so well I think there's a problem with the season struck you know part of the problems is you know is straight up jealousy you know okay. we do not have the resources or the development pathways that the Irish provinces do. And so when it comes to this time of year, for example, and we've got, you know, still got Pro 14 games going on, it feels like, you know, particularly because Welsh regions are actively compelled to spend a lot of their money on Welsh internationals that then disappear for, for all the international periods. It, there's a definite sort of playing with one arm tied behind your back vibe that, has really soured the Pro 14 in a lot of eyes of like regional fans. And then when you get outside the regional fans, that that's a whole other thing, to be honest. Like the people who don't like the Pro 14 just don't like it because it exists. Because okay, they, yeah. they wish that the Welsh Premiership was still the top flight of Welsh rugby and that all the you know 20 premiership teams that existed in 1997 still were duking it out every week, which is absolute fantasy and would never work. But that's, you know, those people are you know, there's no reaching those kind of people. But from a, yeah, from an actual regional fan perspective, I think it's it's the sense that's very rarely that we get. I think it's the timing thing as well because of the way that the season goes. Like quite often, Welsh teams are playing other Welsh teams, and we've got all our internationals because of the way the season structure. But then quite often, when we, end, we come around to playing the Irish teams, it's during the Six Nations because of the nature of the scheduling thing. Yeah, when you know you still got you know, capped All Blacks or capped Australian internationals or whatever turning out for you guys. And we've got a, you know, a couple of lads who probably wouldn't even make, you know, a, a English championship level club having to turn out for us because of how little cash there is to throw around. And this, you know, it's not all about that, but I think that's the prevailing sense amongst a lot of fans that we rarely, outside of like the occasional matchup in Europe, get to see a full strength Wales team, you know, Welsh side go full strength against uh, an Irish side to sort of see who's best. I get, and Warren Gatton deluded it today that you know most of the Welsh players have a bit of a chip on their shoulder about the Irish players, not because of anything that's happened at international level, but because you know, they're quite used to getting battered by them in the Pro 14 on a regular basis, and so that kind of feeds that. I think. 
Warren stirring it uh, before a game against Ireland. I, I, I can't believe it. Shocked, I say. Surely not. Uh, Never. <laughs> uh, I, I, look, I'll very briefly talk about the, the game at the weekend, but just before mm. you do, the, your sense on what is going to happen then, because outside, like it looks like it is drawn, back to the drawing board, but like in, in was there enough outrage to say there that they're going like that there will be an Ospreys and a Scarlets next year? I think the it's not so much the outrage, it's the fact that the Ospreys have basically put their flag in the ground and said we're not going anywhere and are threatening to get lawyers involved that's usually enough to you know put most people who are trying to try strange and not entirely sensible things to go yeah that's maybe not a brilliant idea Mm. so yeah i think it is going to be back to the drawing board and we'll try something else all right we'll see what happens and we'll definitely be following that over the over the coming weeks because god it's an amazing thing to just think that a team will just disappear. You know, in, in, like I know yeah. it's all happened before, but every time you go through it, it's just a remarkable, remarkable yeah. thought. And, you know? and with the Ospreys, it's even more bizarre because they're Wales' most successful team by some distance. And yeah, it's very odd. Um, okay, well, look, happier now, because Wales do, it's, it's something that occurred to me during that whole conversation is that Wales, like, I don't think that Ireland could, without the provincial structure if so many players are playing abroad and it's one of the things they're so protective of if they could continue to produce at international level and continue to do it but Wales just seem to time and time again and have all the players there um this is a huge rivalry over the last like 10 15 years it's developed into I remember hearing Shane Horgan talking about like how for players this is now bigger than England um we talked earlier in the season about for Wales that the Ireland game is nearly bigger than England in some ways especially for the players if not for the fans and for it to come down to this Ireland getting back into some kind of form I know it's probably not their 2018 form yet but they have won three games in a row now they played well at least for 60 minutes um on Sunday there, what, how, how's your sense of how's it, how, how the game is going to go? I mean, it's going to be business as usual, isn't it? In terms of, you know, these games are attritional and they are tight. And there's, you know, particularly in Cardiff, <laughs> and the game is usually decided on some sort of incredibly controversial moment. So, I mean, I don't think... Mike see... Phillips uh, around anymore, yeah. anyway, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah, like you say, I feel like, Ireland have played themselves into a fair bit of form. You know, they, they look a lot they look a lot more like their old selves on the weekend. Um and you know, typically as far as you know we're concerned, it's like of course they they look decent again now they're kind of a rob us of a grand slam, you know. But I think it's gonna be a very tight game, it's gonna be a very attritional game, it's gonna be very you know, the physicality is gonna be off the charts, there's gonna be a lot of a lot, you know, I hate I'm not gonna say anything about the bloody lions, but you know, it, it has that sort of big brother little brother vibe thing it almost you know it's slightly patronizingly england's players have said that it has that vibe about it to wales and england but because of the pro 14 it's almost become a little bit like that with ireland as well you know it's like ireland and no you know domestically a much better much more sane and sensible country you know as far as your success goes you know with the provinces and and we've been watching that you know enviously and playing catch-up for a very long time and so it adds that edge and it adds that niggle, but it's Wales are a very different animal. Like you say, you know, you take us out, take our players out of the regions, and they yeah. something changes when they put that red shirt on. So, yeah, I don't like to call it because I just think it's possibly too close to call. Mm. Because I think the Cardiff crowd will always be a factor when Wales are involved. It's ridiculous in professional sport in 2019 that something as you know old-fashioned as cheering <laughs> and having your home fans in front of you can have that much impact yeah. on an athlete's performance but you've only got to look at the way that Wales have played when the Malone Stadium Prince Boundary Stadium crowd has really got behind them in the last sort of four or five years it's it, it changes something and I think that will play a big part in it as well and you know sadly the ref is always going to be a factor as well in terms of you know both sides have gotten sort of criticism for things that they're getting away with mm. at the rock and at the breakdown so far and kind of what way the man in the middle decides to police that area of the game on the weekend I think will be probably massive as well. Well, we can't wait for it. It's going to be a brilliant occasion anyway. And yeah. I suppose, you know, if, 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 if Ireland can deny Wales the Grand Slam, I think I think it, it, it probably gives England the championship, which isn't ideal, but uh, it does... 
just, just for that. <laughs> <laughs> it does send, I think, three teams into the World Cup then from the Six Nations in really good form. So there's a lot, there's a lot kind of um, to play for and a lot kind of at stake. And I think that the atmosphere is going to be unbelievable. And it's yeah, just it's going to be up the charts. So, um, Josh, listen. Thanks so much for for joining us. Um, the Blood Mud Podcast. Um, I think where where can we um, or when can we listen to that this week? Uh, it's it's usually out Tuesday morning, same as you guys. So uh, yeah, wherever good podcasts are sold, uh, Apple Podcasts, Acast, <laughs> all that good stuff. So uh, yeah. Well, I hope everybody checks it out, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon, Josh. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, fellas. Brilliant stuff from Josh there. Um, really, really good guest. Uh, someone that I'll definitely be checking out the Mud and Blood podcast. Something very interesting that he talked about there was the uh, the influence of a crowd, right? And it's like it's actually a very Six Nations thing as well. Like think about John Hayes crying in the national anthems and how pumped up these guys get for things. And I do think a home crowd actually does matter. But then I'm listening to you with with your line out mumbo jumbo and your smart rugby players and the, them knowing more than any of us could ever possibly know about the game and you're like how do those things coexist but they actually do though like yeah. you know if you see like there is definitely a like home advantage it like sport is still comes ultimately down to having been g'd up by your fans and like it's you know everybody needs a, a vibes man like you always need that kind of <laughs> thing to rub off and if that is can be your crowd or if it's a player who's particularly vocal or whatever it, it's it's bound to have a bound to have an impact i mean it's like the you think about the most crucial periods in games when the home crowd kind of gets vocalized, it can't help but help. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, um, and it's interesting. And actually, I do kind of like it is one of the reasons that I think sometimes we're we're looking at this game going like you know, are Ireland as good as Wales? Can we beat them? And it's like yes, we can beat them. It's like will we though? It's like being in Cardiff is a massive thing, and I think that's what if you look at how worn down England were by the end of that game. Yes, a lot of it was because Wales played really well and tackled them into the ground and, you know, caused them to tackle a lot, I suppose, is, is uh, even more tiring. But I think the atmosphere in Cardiff for a whole night just kind of like wore them down in the end, you know. Anyway, look, we'll see what happens and we'll we'll talk. Uh, I want to get your Ireland team to start against Wales before we find it out on uh, Thursday. But... Um, one other thing I just wanted to mention on the show, we always talk about the Irish players playing around uh, the world at this stage, I suppose, and definitely a really interesting one from a, an almost forgotten son uh, of Irish rugby is Ian Madigan nailing a conversion from the sideline to win for, for Bristol at the weekend in the 88 minutes. <laughs> yeah, some bottle. It's a, um, yeah. it's a like. Speaking of Irish, like you got Jay Keenan playing at seven in the same game. John Muldoon is obviously coaching there with, with Pat Lamb. Yeah, the a guy like Madigan, like the there's kind of like a a nice success story in the idea that he can still do that. But like even if it's outside the sphere of Irish rugby, like we keep going back to that idea. But it's like the the bottle and the nerve to kind of stand up and do something like that. And yeah, on like on his right foot, singing it straight across. Uh, unbelievable stuff for Bristol. Who he absolutely nailed it. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, I mean it was like a peach, but. Uh, a team who at one stage looked like they were in a relegation dogfight and now have their eyes on on Europe. Europe, like, yeah. Probably, uh, probably legitimately a bad result for Northampton, who are now down in seventh. Uh, also, really bad week for Wasps. We, we spoke to Ian Costa about this idea that they were going to kick on in this Six yeah. Nations period, and that was a seventy fourth minute penalty that cost them. That yeah, or sorry, eighty fourth minute. Sorry, yeah, that, yeah. That's, uh, that must uh, be the biggest sickener for Wasps at the minute is the fact that they keep losing games in the last minute. Like they lost to yeah. Leicester by four points, they lost this game by a point. Uh, they're now. I think they're eighth. Like the the idea of missing out in Europe is now a distinct possibility for a team who had legitimate top four aspirations at the at the start of the year. We just spoke to Josh about the idea that Sean Edwards might. Uh, so there's been a lot of rumors that Sean Edwards is going to come down there and Dai Young is going yeah. to remain as director of rugby, but he could come in as head coach. Um, from somebody like uh, Incasso's perspective, they've already had a really small coaching team, so I think that could be a beneficial thing to have a guy like him come in. He, like the, they have Andy uh, Titterell, who's the old sales sharks hooker, the English. Uh, he played a couple games for England yeah. as well. He's their attacks coach, but other than that, they don't have a huge coaching setup, so that might be to their benefit. There's a couple of um, really interesting things happening in the Premiership right now that maybe we could delve into further down the line. Like sure, this. Uh, this Saracen scandal, potential scandal, which when it comes to are they breaking the salary cap or not, or an owner who owns a lot of property, which seems to be rented out to a lot of his players and things like this. Yeah. There's uh, 
a whole kind of host of narratives yeah. there that uh, we would certainly be. Are any to. are any English club truly within the salary cap? Though <laughs> yeah, I, think yeah, yeah. I think it's a legitimate question, actually. You know, and I know like there is gifts and different things yeah. going on, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of the Saracens things. And yeah, lots going on in the Premiership. Just briefly back to the Bristol thing, though. Eight minutes over time is <laughs> yeah. a hell of a drive. Like that's Munster Northampton stuff. Like you know, and uh, you know, it, it's funny because we're we're always talking about Madigan. I didn't actually see the try that they got to lead to that conversion, but right out in the sideline, I'd say that was one hell of a drive. Like there's a like and. I, I definitely am not one for comparing sports and I think that every sport has its own, you know, but there, there's something about that sort of there's one play left. If there's a knock on or the ball goes out of play, the game is over. Yeah. You know, there's something, it's Ireland and France last year in Paris. I don't know if there's much as exciting as that drive to win a game when you only have one chance and if you don't get it, it's over. And it happens once every 20 times I think it says a lot about a team's mentality as well it's like yeah. a tangible evidence of a team actually kind of having that belief to stick yeah. with it and like it takes ridiculous accuracy to maintain and that and so much confidence because yeah. you don't always go for the magic shot you know that you can recycle and you can go for it it's such belief like. and Madigan actually floated the pass for that try he actually he gave that as well he did uh, would you call it an assist <laughs> I mean, yeah. he, he, he floated that as well Like so he was kind of pivotal to all elements of that uh they come back right we'll keep an eye on bristol and the premiership in general but we've one more week of the six nations and you know it does trump it all we'll we'll god in a couple of weeks we'll be we'll be relaxed sitting back talking about super rugby and everything what well, <laughs> we won't know ourselves but right now we're very nervous because ireland are going to cardiff at the weekend and you know ultimately if ireland win this game suddenly you're t- there's a very different conversation you're going in having one in cardiff you're going in having one four out of five games and things aren't looking so bad as we head to the World Cup. It's a massive, massive game. What's not? What's going to be the team? What do you think the team should be? Um, so, like, on it is a massive game in this in terms of context of the Six Nations. But the one overriding team should be the World Cup. I'm like, I firm, I keep going back to this idea, and I think right now. But if we win this game, doesn't that make our chances in the World Cup all the better? It, yeah, it does. Absolutely, it does in terms of what it does for for confidence and things like that. But I, I, from my perspective, Ireland have three positions where their number two is either undercooked or is not clear. Okay. So those three positions, I think, right full now back. is fullback. Exa- absolutely, the one hundred percent fullback. Your scrum half, I think, that's still very unclear, yeah. and your hooker is still very unclear. That's three kind of problematic positions, and you can't change all three because it's essentially throwing a game. But if we were to, <laughs> if we were to fixate on one, the idea that. Like, I think fullback is going to be a really problematic situation for Ireland because it is so clear that there is a massive gap between Rob Kearney and everybody else that we don't yeah. know who is going to. And that is partly down to, as we've spoken about in the past, the defensive side of their playing. That's partly down to the age profile or the careers of players who potentially there. So Jordan Armour is very young. Somebody like Robbie Henshaw hasn't played there a lot. Will Addison has just arrived back in Ireland. So all yeah. issues that means that thing. But if... It is going to be Jordan Ireland. I think Jordan Ireland should start against Wales because of what it would, in terms of what it could do for a player who will one hundred percent be on the plane going yeah. to things. But the exposure at this that, at that level of rugby. So Rob Kearney pulled out of the game um, on Sunday because of a calf strain. We're still not sure. We're waiting an update, an injury update on what exactly is the story there. But with that in mind, and even like even despite it, to be honest, I think it stands to reason that to give somebody like Jordan Ireland that level of exposure. It, 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 should, I'm, it could blow up in your face maybe they'll go, they will certainly go after him they're yeah. already a kicking team but I think it's it's worth it because right now Ireland don't know who their second choice is and it's a situation with like eerie kind of ramifications in terms of what happened in Argentina when we didn't know who our second choice players were particularly at 10 and in, in, this, in uh, France for Argentina yeah. in 2007 yeah yeah uh, how, who do you think well we had no second number 10 I think is kind of how that panned yeah, out we I, had a 12 in Paddy Wallace that, that was forced to play there how do you think Larmer did on, on Saturday I like, he wasn't really tested too much yeah, there was the, one yeah. high ball that he missed but turned out was a knock on I thought he was great going forward he wasn't tested defensively bar the knock on which well, I mean didn't really matter in the end yeah. uh, but he, he wasn't tested defensively he will be if he was to start I, to be honest yeah. I'd be surprised if he starts <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I, I just think in terms of what it means like do, in the grand scheme of things, Ireland aren't going to win this nations because I think England are going to win this weekend anyway. So in that scenario, I think it stands to reason that you try and develop. The, it's it could be a huge like missing block 
in terms of building towards a World Cup. I thought Lerman did really well going forward. He was lively with the ball in hand. Yeah. I think if he is that first be, kick he had just kind was, of was I, I thought that it might actually launch it. Yeah. But like he had that one brilliant break and you know whatever about defensively what we know Larmer can do is something that we have to see for Ireland if he's going to justify because he is this incredible attacking uh, force uh, but he probably should have scored in that like I mean there was I was I looking agree, at the replay yeah. and it was like he had the angle that he could have made it and he kind of didn't back himself and it was just a split split second that he hesitated and he just he half turned and then he was never going to make it after that and I, I actually think after Guy Ringo's Jordan Lambert is the best player in Irish rugby in terms of when it doesn't go to plan like if a strike but it doesn't land or if a pass goes to ground in terms of relying on his own innovation to yeah. manif- manifest something and that's something that you could be really really beneficial for, for Ireland the fact that you would bring someone like as versatile as he could be in terms of covering the back three to a World Cup is also paramount. I just think in the grand scheme of things, he should play. Okay. I mean, to move on from that, I think you leave Stockdale, uh, Guy Ringrose, Bundiaki and Keith there as, as they are. Your halfback partnership, This, this like, they finally have shown inklings of a return to form, so I don't think you change Sexton or Murray either. No, neither do I. The only other kind of change area, I think, is in the back row. That'll probably be forced because of... Uh, Dan Levy. Sorry, yeah. We also don't know if uh, Dan Levy is going to be back. I think Ireland stumbled across a back row partnership uh, last weekend that could prove really, really beneficial. There was when CJ Sander first burst onto the scene, there was talk that he could play at seven with Jamie Heaslip at the time. Now we never actually got to see it in action. Yeah, ultimately they were keeping O'Matney out because yeah. it was Sean O'Brien at seven and 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 Sander at six. But yeah. if 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 we were really going to go back to picking on form, so. What you have to bear in mind is that coming down the tracks here is Tipperick, Navidi and Ross Mariardi, which is an incredible back row combination, not only in terms of their balance, but in terms of their ball carrying ability. And in terms of countering that, if you had somebody like Jack Conan and CJ Stander in your back row, like Peter Matney isn't a, a huge ball carrier, but it's not, his, it's not his wheelhouse, it's not what he does. But in terms of the other two, in terms of what they could offer, in terms of matching it blow for blow, I think that could be a, a really potent partnership. And I, I, I actually think it's nearly worth persevering with now. I think Jack Owen has done so little wrong. The only mitigating factor is if somebody like Dan Levy is back because we've spoken in the past about what he does at the breakdown, mm. which is huge. Yeah. So if he if he's back, I, I would totally understand why Schmidt would, would persevere yeah. him. But in, in lieu of that, I think you persevere with Jack Conan. I think it's it's only fair to it's continue with form. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have said you say that, but I can't really argue with you either. I want to say something very brief about Levy, uh, Dan Levy, actually. Now, like Dan Levy had a very good Six Nations last year. I think he's even had a better one this year because the longer he's gone, <laughs> the more I think people are like the more. Well, me personally, anyway, and I'm always very impressed with him whenever he plays. And I got to the stage like after last year's Six Nations where I'm like, this guy's has to play. And I'm sorry, I love Sean O'Brien, but this guy needs to be at seven. And I don't know if that if Schmidt has ever been in that category. It seems to be one of three at seven on any given day. But I think the longer this year has gone, and it's like it, it, Van der Fleer's done well in in his way, but and 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 Sean hasn't been in bad form or anything like that. But I think you're kind of going. We're missing our first choice number seven at this stage, you know. Yeah. And I think it's more clear now that he's been out of the team. Yeah, especially in terms of as we spoke about earlier, like the the balance that that he brings. Also, it's worth bearing in mind that in the past, Dan Levy's returned from injury instantly. Like he didn't need a warm up game and was immense mm. when, he, when he's done that previously. Now you could say the same thing. I just thing wonder about, about the last game of a tournament. I think Henshaw and Levy. I think at this stage are probably just going to be left. You know. Oh, I, I mean, I if if it's the predicted team, I would be very surprised if yeah. if he's in it. I yeah. To be honest, I also would be surprised if Jack Owen is there either. Yeah. I think uh, the fact that Schmidt referenced Sean O'Brien and, um, and Sean Cronin after the game would lead me to believe that two of them will come back into the squad, okay. I think. But yeah. uh, in, in, in my own opinion, it, you should kind yeah. of pursue it. Uh, Reese Ruddock is knocking around as well. Yeah, he is, and he's a really dynamic presence, a guy who Schmidt really, really likes. Yeah. But um, the second row, I think, in Henderson and James Ryan, that's a great partnership. Uh, based off what they did last week, I yeah. think you should continue with that's that. That's the best Henderson's played for Ireland in two years or so. I think, like you know, and it's it's really good to see that you know this guy that I kept saying is almost unlucky because he's waiting for his chance, waiting for his chance. And then James Ryan comes out of nowhere and he's a superstar. And then he, okay, right, he's still there. He's waiting for his chance. Him, him versus Toner, and then you know, like 
as that's coming and Tony's getting injured, it's like Ty Byrne suddenly becomes this player who's <laughs> like man of the match in every game for his club. And it's like as if, am I going to get passed over again here? But he's got his chance. And yeah. he's playing really well whenever he's been fit this season for Ulster. And now he's in and he did it for Ireland. And I was actually happy for him. You know, I think that he kind of, he deserved to have that kind of day where he wasn't like, James Ryan got man the match. There was about four choices. I would have had Henderson as one of them. Yeah. Um, I absolutely would have as well. Another one who would have been in the record for that, I think, is Keane Healy. I think uh, when we come to, eventually we're going to pick a team in this tournament, I think he, right now he looks nailed on, but he's been incredible. Like the resurgence in his career is one of the most remarkable things that's happened in Irish rugby recently. Uh, and he's just going from strength to strength to the extent where Jack McGrath is now looking at moving to Ulster. Um, which I mean quite rightly if he's if he's in search of game time it might kind of make sense yeah am um, I right in saying that best and furlong are your next two yeah you're, you're, you're not going yeah. to drop Rory no, well no uh, I wouldn't go to drop Rory because of what it losing fact I think in terms of you know correcting certain areas like if, if a lot of people have clamoured to see Sean Cronin come back and I can totally understand that because of the form he's in but I do think that there needs to be a very clear second choice starting hooker. Yeah. And that's something that we still don't have right now, mm-hmm. which is a slight concern. So based off that, like I think Nice Gannon could probably consider himself unlucky if he isn't on the bench. I mean, people are gonna Sean Cronin is a fan favourite. And I actually I love Sean Cronin as well yeah. in terms of what the as a as an impact sub. But thinking long term, I think there's an argument to be made that somebody like uh, Nice Gannon should be on the bench. Yeah. Um and, you know, for the grand things. I also think that Porter will probably come back in as well, which is probably fair enough in terms of the what you're looking for these kind of players. So you're looking for about 25 caps for these kind of mid 20 tier players who will play every game, whether it be off the bench or starting, you know, yeah. a game against Samoa or whatever when it comes to a World Cup. And the guys like Porter, like who are in single digit caps right now, they will need kind of the exposure to this level of game plan and stuff like that. So with that in mind, I think he should come back in as well. That's that's what you're trying to look. You're trying to build that. Like that mid-tier yeah. depth that will hopefully sustain because Ireland are like I think uh, Ireland in terms of their actual rook percentages or their amount of rooks are hitting they're a lot higher than a lot of other teams. I think like, you know they were over 140 for a couple of games, in mm. season, which is a huge amount of rooks. Yeah, and based off that idea, these that's an attritional that's game phases, plan. Phases, 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 yeah. phases, phases. Which, so yeah. what my point is that's attritional, and because it's attritional, you will never really suffer injuries yeah. and. You want to be in a situation where you can account for those injuries, and because of that, I think players like Joan Lammer should start in Wales. I don't mm. think it'll happen. No, I, I just want to point out that you've gone with that front row, which is an unchanged front row, and you've somehow uh, really uh, kind of gone through that team with a lot of kind of, you know, uh, made it like smoke and daggers. I would say <laughs> to to ultimately pick the team that, other than the injured Josh Van de Fleer, who came exact on for same, you, yeah. picked the same team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like and yeah and like. I think there's um I Josh Smith actually I think this is something that is burning his mind. He keeps referencing the fact that he's given certain players game time, like he got yeah. Jack Owen on his start. Uh, he's talked about the fact that he's you know, he's had four different hookers involved in the squads and things like this, but you can't be exposure at elite le- like yeah, at elite the level. Top top teams, yeah, the like biggest the, games. That yeah. those kind of like game time is, is what, what, what will really matter. And yeah. It's just why it's a shame that um Joey Carvey got injured and maybe hasn't got the yeah. same level of exposure, but he did you know, play a game in yeah. Scotland and it's why success can work against you sometimes if it happens too far out from and I think it happened to us in two thousand seven, you know, is that it's very hard not to have faith in those players. Yeah. But form doesn't say the same, people come true and it is hard to kind of make that decision. But if you look at what did the Italy game give us, well, like it probably put Jack Conan on the bench for this week mm-hmm. where he came on and got his chance and played very well in a much bigger game and will probably stay at least involved in the squad and you know what we don't often talk about when we're talking about these 15s and you did it very well there is that the bench is just as important yeah and it is jet like rugby more than any other sports a 23 23 team get, uh, person game like so although andrew conway was sitting on the bench a long time on saturday yeah wasn't i thought he? that on was Sunday. a shame he only got five yeah. minutes uh exposure i yeah like maybe it's like Mr. although at the same time France were starting to fight back and maybe you don't want to rock the boat too much yeah. at the at the same time I th- like I think he got a lot of game time in uh, November certainly I know yeah. he maybe the designations mightn't have gone exactly as the way he goes I think he should still be the number 23 this weekend yeah. all things considered I still think that um, John Cooney should still be the back of scrum app all things considered even though Kim Marion was immense for Connacht and hasn't done a whole lot wrong either but again you're talking about building like a a tier of competition, that kind of level of performance. Like a guy yeah. like Jack Carty, who now looks really, really comfortable at this level, based yeah. off two kind of 
what would you call them cameo performances yeah like all that does is kind of spur on those around him he, he jack conan forces somebody like ross Byrne to respond to his level of performance and that kind of a rising tide brings up yeah. all about yeah absolutely yeah and look normally we would um we'd get, talk, get you to bring us through your role in team of the six nations i think we've gone on long <laughs> enough now we're obviously getting excited ireland got into the back of form but you'll do that on balls that sure. during the week instead and people can read it there and then we'll talk next tuesday about the um we'll we'll do our final team of the six nations uh working off morris's week by week um work there but um yeah look i mean you can obviously tell we're excited we're back into it there's nothing like the back-to-back weeks though because we're straight back in this week next saturday super saturday three games uh there's a lot of sport on this weekend in general actually but uh in terms of rugby ireland france or ireland uh, wales ireland is the middle game there so nice time you know we can go beat wales put our feet up, assume that England are going to beat Scotland, but then be absolutely delighted when Scotland come out and get five tries <laughs> and Ireland are sitting around in an empty Millennium Stadium getting the uh, get, <laughs> getting the Six Nations trophy yet again. That's yeah. what's going to happen, isn't it? It's spot on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what would be the worst thing, actually? If Wales and Ireland draw, then... No, Wales would just lose the Six Nations then in general. Sorry, I was thinking that they could ha- have to hang around and get uh, oh, get the trophy in their empty it, yeah. stadium, which would be which would be shit. Anyway, <laughs> none of this is going to happen. Uh, England are probably go- either Wales are going to win the Grand Slam or England are going to win the championship Nations, in Twickenham. Yeah. But Ireland could go out on a high and actually go into the World Cup with some momentum. Either way, we can't wait, and we'll talk to you about how it all went down next Tuesday. Take it easy. Mm-hmm.